Well, our sermon today comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 19. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open uh, to that uh, wonderful book. It's on page 981 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you uh, do not have a Bible of your own, uh, that Pew Bible in front of you is our gift to you. And we certainly love for you to have that and have a copy of God's Word. And so uh, please feel free to take that home with you on your way out this morning. And you'll find that on page 981. We'll begin in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19. And we are going to, let's see, work through 12 verses today. So you didn't think I could do that? Uh, we'll see if we could get out by lunchtime. And we're excited about that. I do want you to have a copy of the Bible in your lap, even though it's going to be on the screen. I think you'll find the sermon much more engaging, uh, easier to follow. If you're able to continually refer back to Scripture, which we will do. And so please uh, have a copy of God's Word before you. What a wonderful reminder it is to have that in your lap, to know that what we're hearing is God's Word and not man's Word. And so let's uh, consider God's Word now in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 19. Please hear now the Word of God. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How is a son with a father? He has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I, I trust in the Lord shortly that I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Paphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am more the eager to send him then, uh, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather together this morning as your people who have been bought by the blood of Christ, who have bowed our knee to King Jesus, that we might sit under your revelation, that you might teach us today. And so, Father, I pray that you would speak to us through your spirit, that he would come and and show us your word and show us your will for our life. Pray for my friend here, perhaps, that is hurting and lonely, confused. Future is uncertain. Life is difficult. I ask, Father, that you would especially bless them through your word, that they would know there's a sovereign God in the heavens who controls all things and loves them, and that they would know that their life is made for you and to find their delight in you. Why don't you do that for us, Father? Help us to find our delight in you today as we consider your will for us through your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite heroes, Jonathan Edwards, uh, perhaps some have considered him America's greatest theologian, was born in 1703. Large family. He had 10 siblings, all of whom were sisters. And so he was somewhat of a peculiar child. Um, When the other boys were building forts and playing colonists and Indians, perhaps, uh, Jonathan Edwards was known to build a fort in order to hold a prayer meeting. And he would gather all his friends together in order that they may pray for the Indians and that they may pray that the gospel would abound. He's an incredibly brilliant young man. By the age of six, he had pretty much mastered Latin. By the age of 12, he was accepted into Yale University in which he graduated as its valedictorian at age 17. He would go on to pastor for 23 years in Northampton, Massachusetts. He would become the father of 11 children himself, a lover of nature, and his writings have influenced thousands, including yours truly rather profoundly. In fact, I not only appreciate uh, Jonathan Edwards' uh, theological writings, I appreciate uh, the letters that he's wrote and his more biographic, autobiographical work. In fact, after he had served his church for 23 years in Northampton, Massachusetts, he was fired by that congregation. He was fired because he refused, as the pastor of that church, to give communion to non-Christians. He wouldn't do it. The church said, we need to give it to everyone. And he said, I won't do it. And so they fired him. When Jonathan Edwards was fired, he had nine children. The youngest was three months old. 
He wrote to a friend about this event, revealing his heart. He said, I am now separated from the people between whom and me there was once the greatest union. Remarkable is the providence of God in this matter. I have nothing to depend upon for my future usefulness or the subsistence of my numerous family. But I have hope we have an all-sufficient, faithful, covenant God to depend upon. I desire that I may ever submit to Him, walk humbly before Him, and put my trust wholly in Him. Please, sir, pray for me. See, Jonathan Edwards had this remarkable dependence upon God. This remarkable commitment to God. That he followed him all of his days. And not only would Edwards follow him, but he would lead many others to follow God as well. In fact, the stories of his children's devotion to God are equally inspiring. All 11 of them were devoted to Jesus Christ, including his daughter Jerusha, who was willing to care for the, the dying missionary David Branyard, who was dying at age 29, knowing full well that she most likely would catch the tuber- tuberculosis from which he was dying, and she would too die, which she did six months after she cared for this man. He influenced a number of people. And last week in our study of the book of Philippians, we considered that we are products of influence. And we see that here, I think, once again in this text, that, we, that, that people grow up imitating those around them. And so children often end up like their parents, for better or worse, like father, like son. This is why parents are concerned with who their children spend time with and befriend. Because they know that they're going to, to copy other kids and pick up their behavior and mannerisms. This is why teens, even though they rejoice in their vaunted independence, are often so keen to copy their peers and be just like them. Because they want those friendships. And sometimes when we don't find friends out in the world, we find it on the television, I think. In fact, I think some people prefer the television to be their friends than real people. And we would retreat to the television. I'm sure all the television doesn't talk back, does it? At least not yet. I'm not sure about the technology that's coming for. But we could always shut it off. And we, we constantly are influenced by, by people all around us. And it's not limited to uh, um, the, the normal life or even debauchery on television. It's, it's also true in our Christian life. You and I as followers of Jesus Christ are influenced by other people. In fact, the Bible tells us as much over and over again. The, the book of Philippians, for instance, in chapter 3 and verse 17 says... Brothers, join in imitating me. Paul invites them to follow his example. And keep your eyes, he says, on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Or he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4, that Timothy is to set the believers an example. Or he writes to Titus saying, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. Or Peter himself will write to the elders to be examples to the flock. We, we, we follow people. We imitate them. In fact, Jonathan Edwards himself would say, there are two ways of recommending true religion and virtue to the world. The one is by doctrine and precept. The other is by instance and example. In fact, John MacArthur, perhaps more contemporarily, put it this way. We tend to be creatures led more by pattern than precept. We are much better at following a model than we are trying to live out a concept. I wonder if this is why so few Christians really show any great advancement in godliness. I, I think as Christians, we, we know the word well. I think we understand theology well. We, we constantly sit under God's word, whether it be a Sunday morning preaching or Sunday school or other Bible studies. And, and we like to, most of us, open our word of God every morning and, and sit under it and hear from God. And we, we constantly are growing and advancing in our understanding of, of God's word. But I wonder if we're equally advancing in our application of God's word in our actually becoming like the Bible recommends us to become. I wonder if we struggle in this area because the American church has, has, uh, has understood discipleship to be largely dependent upon programs rather than relationships. I'm struck with how Jesus created disciples. Certainly he taught them, but he invited them to follow him, to invest his life in them, and his example for them was profound. I believe we would do well to have examples of godliness in our lives, that they would put into practice with the Christian life. We would see how they talk and how they think and how they raise their family and how they give and how they have godly habits. Paul evidently is aware of this, this example. In fact, just to put it in context where we are in the book of Philippians, you remember it was way back in chapter 1 and verse 27 that Paul gives the first command in this book that we are to live out lives worthy of the gospel. 
He calls us to do that in the midst of a pagan land, that when people oppose us, that, that we will show them that we value the gospel. And then in early chapter 2, he says we're to live out lives worthy of the gospel, not to the outside world, but to one another as we consider each other's interest above our own. We look not only to our own interests, but that of others. And then he shows us the example of Christ from chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, how Christ in this incredible humiliation came from heaven to earth to die on a cross for us, and then followed by this great, incredible exaltation. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've seen because of what Christ has done. You and I are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling because God works in us to will and to do. And if we do, we will become as light shining in a crooked and twisted generation. And this is where we come to. And, and we, we now come to verse 19. And in light of all this rich theology and this, these uh, challenging exhortations, we may be surprised by the text in front of us. We, we may be surprised wondering why in the world does Paul put such mundane information in this letter, especially at this point. You may be thinking, are we really going to study the travel log of two little known men according to an ancient letter? Yes, of course we are. This is God's word. But it's interesting to think, why is it here? I mean, Paul will often tra- discuss his travel plans, but he always does at the end of his letters. And yet the book of Philippians is unique in that he puts it right in the middle. What is Paul doing? Well, he's certainly explaining, as we'll see in a moment, that Timothy plans to come to them, but not right away, and Epaphroditus will be coming soon. But I think more importantly, what Paul is doing is he's giving them examples to imitate. He's showing them what it looks like to live worthy of the gospel. He wants them to see it in these men's lives. In fact, both these men are, men are well known to the Philippian church. and They need no introduction. And yet Paul gives them quite an extensive introduction. Because he wants them to, to be examples for them to imitate. And so we're going to look at this text. And, and as we do, I would commend to you to consider Timothy. And let him show you what it's like to give your heart to others for the sake of the gospel. And I would commend you to consider Epaphroditus. That you let him show you the quiet sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And I would commend you to consider Paul. And let him show you how to connect your life with others with his deep abiding love through the gospel. And in fact, I would commend you to consider your own life. I think as we look at this passage, you would do well to consider, am I worthy of imitation? Do I live a life worthy of emulation? If other people followed me, where would they end up? Would I commend people to say, you all would do well to imitate me as Paul does? Well, first, let's consider Timothy, who I would call this selfless servant. Look in verse 19. Paul says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon so that so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Now he's already introduced Timothy way back in chapter one, verse one. He said, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And so he, he already begins to let them know about Timothy. Timothy's a, a wonderful man. He was uh, uh, from a city called Lystra. And when Paul was on his second, second missionary journey, he traveled through Lystra. And it's probably there that he laid on hands on Timothy and ordained him to some type of vocational ministry, whether it be pastoral or a missionary. And then from that point, Timothy tra- crossed the Adriatic Sea with Paul over into Philippi. And the first town he would go into, this newly ordained man, would be the town of Philippi as Paul planted a church there. And Timothy was, before he was commissioned by Paul, was this believer whom everyone was uh, somewhat impressed with, even when he was a teenager, even though we're not sure how he come, came to faith in Christ. We do know that Paul most likely led his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, to Christ, and they had a powerful role in Timothy's life. But I, I think that Paul probably also led Timothy to faith in Jesus. This is why Paul will call him my true son in the faith. In fact, Paul may have done that on his first missionary trip to uh, Timothy's hometown, Lystra. It's a fascinating story that Paul would go into Lystra and begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did not respond favorably. In Acts 14 and verse 19, it says they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. In other words, a pretty serious stoning, right? They, they hit him so hard with rocks that he evidently went unconscious to the point where they had to drag his body out of town there to rot. At least that's what they thought. And, and he was so, so injured, he, he was unconscious. Um, and so they thought he was dead. 
So his life signs may have been, been um, pretty dim. Some have even speculated he may have died and God raised him from the dead. We're not sure, but certainly they thought he was dead. And so there is Paul kind of laying there, forsaken, a dead man outside the city of Lystra, and he wakes up. And what did Paul do? Well, the very next verse tells us. When the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. He goes back. Now, I'm not sure what you're supposed to do after you're stoned. But I'm pretty sure what you're not supposed to do. And that's to go back into the city. And yet here goes Paul, and he's limping back with perhaps a broken leg and a lacerated head. I don't know if he's feeling a little dizzy, what's going on. And the disciples must have thought, what are you doing, Paul? What are you doing? And I wonder if he said, I wasn't finished, right? I wasn't finished. And so in he goes back to Lystra to finish the message that was so rudely interrupted by flying stones. And Paul goes back, and I wonder, do you think that might have uh, impacted Timothy? It probably scared him. Um, And yet I'm sure it had a profound impact upon his life as he saw this man's commitment to Christ and his love for other people, even at great personal sacrifice and expense. And so by the time Paul came back through Leicester, Timothy was ready to go. And Timothy would be Paul's constant companion for almost 10 years up to this point. He says, I'm going to send him to you there in verse 19. He wants to send Timothy, it seems to me, as I try to put the events together, after the arrival of the letter. So the letter's going to get to them, and Timothy will come sometimes after the letter, and he's going to see how it's been received. Timothy's going to consider, okay, do they like the letter? Are they obeying the letter? Are they following Paul's uh, prompting? And, and he'll event, evidently come back to Paul. See that in the end of verse 19, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. He's going to come back and tell Paul his report on how they received the letter. And so that seems to be the primary reason that Timothy's going. At least that's what Paul says. But I think there's a number of reasons. I think it's that Timothy is going to go to the uh, church in Philippi in order to serve as an example to them. In fact, you see in verse 20, he says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. You see, Timothy loves others, doesn't he? Paul says that his love is genuine there in verse 20. It's seen in his concern for them. He, he loves them. In fact, Paul, when he wrote his list of of the, the cost of his apostolic ministry. He, at the end of that list, he says, he ends it with saying, the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I wonder if that's Paul's heaviest burden. Well, it seems like Timothy shares this burden. He's genuinely concerned for your welfare, Paul says. He understands that. And this is what distinguishes Timothy. You see, his love's not only genuine, it's unique. You see what he said in verse 21? They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Or even back up in verse 20, I have no one like him, he says. See, everyone else is looking, what do I get out of this? How am I going to be blessed by this ministry? But not so for Timothy. He's not concerned with what he gets out. He's not seeking his own interests. He embodies what Paul had encouraged them back in verse 4, that they should look not only to their own interests, but the interest of others. And so here comes this man who's, who has his mind of Christ. And you can see how helpful he would be in a church that's suffering through disunity issues. Here comes one who, in, in humble unity, as he gives this example of genuine love for them. In fact, I think his selfless love is, is evident to them even before he arrives there. The fact that he's willing to make this journey there at all. It's hard for us to appreciate, I think, in our day of transcontinental air travel. We just go wherever we want at little cost to us. But in Timothy's day, the the most direct route to get from Rome, which is where he is, to Philippi, is to take the 350-mile trip on the Via Appia in Rome from from to Italy's southeast coast, and there begin a 90-mile voyage by sail across the Adriatic Sea, only at that point to begin the remaining 360-mile trip across Macedonia to Philippi. And evidently, he's planning to come back that way. You see the sacrifice of time he's willing to give. The sacrifice of comfort, even safety, is immense for them. And yet I think it's gladly borne by Timothy because he loves them. He has the mind of Christ. I think this happens to us when we become captured by the gospel. That is, overwhelmed by what Christ has done in our life, our love happily sacrifices for others. We're happy to sacrifice our precious privacy or our well-deserved leisure if it will bring Christ to those whom we love, if it will encourage them. You see, your commitment to God is often seen in your love for one another. 
It's not simply seen in the intensity of your singing or how many theological books you've read. It's understood in the depth of your love to to those around you, those who are in this room. Your, Your love for Christ is manifested in how you are willing to sacrifice for one another. This is why we at Hamilton Baptist Church encourage meaningful church membership. That membership is not just a raising of hand, it's a, it's a covenanting with one another. That's why I'm so encouraged by Christine and Ryan and Timothy who want to become meaningful members of this church, want to get involved in the lives of the people in this church and, and bless them and to receive that blessing back upon them. It, it, because it's a lot easier to be a Christian on your own, isn't it? It's a lot easier. Just do this on your own thing, not being obligated to others, helping when it's convenient, avoiding when it's not. I don't think that's what God has called us to. I I don't think that's what Christ has shown us. I think we show our commitment to Christ by our commitment to one another, to our faith community here at Hamilton Baptist Church. That's why I encourage you to get involved in each other's lives. Join a small group, start a small group, get in a discipling relationship. I, I hope you will join me in praying that our church would grow, that we would love one another biblically, as Christianly, In fact, I pray that we would grow as a church as we love the hurting brothers around this world that we're willing to sacrifice for their well-being. I think we did a good work on Wednesday as we gathered together as members of Hamilton Baptist Church and we we released $50,000 from our bank accounts just sitting there in order that uh, Native American children would have a place to be educated and hear the gospel and in order that, that women in Loudoun County who fall in hard times will have a transitional housing to stay. And we entered into a partnership uh, that will be increasingly uh, uh, relevant to our church to bring in the gospel to northern Iraq and to a land called Kurdistan with a man named Ryan Coppice. He's actually going to be here teaching Craig Sweeney's Sunday school class on on. June 1st. Many of you already know Ryan. And I was so pleased to see um, the church move in this direction as we increasingly want to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Sacrifice for our brothers and sisters around the world. In fact, we not only sacrificed, we did it unanimously. Every time we presented something and discussed it, the response was a unanimous affirmation. This is where we're headed as a church. 72 to nothing every time we voted. I was so incredibly encouraged by that. And yet I do, to be honest, wondered where the rest of the members were. It was 72. Certainly we have more members than 72. And as I looked around and encouraged by those who were here, I was somewhat discouraged by those who chose not to be here. And I certainly know that many of you had obligations and, and, and things to do, and I'm certainly well aware of that. But I trust there are many here that are members of Hamilton Baptist Church just chose not to come. And I, I'd just be curious as to why you made that decision. We, we certainly, I'm not in any way saying that you ought to come to the church building every time the doors are open. In fact, I would argue the opposite. But I think perhaps when the members of the church gather together, periodically, I think the members of the church ought to gather together. I think they ought to be there. In fact, I would just simply encourage you to think, not do I want to come to this, but will my presence bless other people? Maybe if we're willing to endure hardship and inconvenience for the blessing of other people, our love for one another will grow. I think Timothy gives us this wonderful example here. I think he cherishes the gospel and therefore loves these people. In fact, you see that. Well, Paul not only says he loves them, but he lives for the gospel. Look in verse 21. He says, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He seeks the interests of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 22, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How is a son with a father? He has served with me in the gospel. He says that he has proven worth, Paul says about him there in verse 20, 22, that Timothy has proven himself. He has been tested and he has passed. He did so in Philippi when Paul and Silas were surrounded by that angry mob and he didn't run home. He did so in Berea when Paul was kicked out, but Timothy stayed behind to preach. And he did so here at this moment, standing by Paul, who, have, who has been perhaps in prison for four years now. Timothy has proven worth, Paul. In fact, Paul wrote 13 letters in the New Testament, seven of them he introduces Timothy in the introduction. He's almost like the co-author. Two of them are actually written to Timothy, and four of them are about Timothy. He was incredibly important to Paul's life. In fact, he describes them there in verse 22 as like a son with his father, that, that, that he is like my son. In fact, Paul would occasionally describe people as his son. But with Timothy, he would not do it once, but in the New Testament, he did this six times. In 1 Timothy, he calls him my true son. In 2 Timothy, 
my beloved son in 1 Corinthians, my faithful child. Timothy, who was raised by a pagan father, had found a spiritual father in Paul. In fact, in in that day, when, when Paul says, like a son with a father, what he means is the good and faithful son actually does what his father has shown him to do. In our day, I think it's somewhat opposite. We kind of raise up our kids, do the best we can, and then send them off, right? And, and often we hope they don't end up doing what we do. But in this day, it was the exact opposite. You would actually train them up so that they can continue on your work, carry on your name. I try to do this with my children, you know, simple ways. They're still young. But, uh, you know, how to shake a hand properly is important, I think. I don't know if some of you men agree. And so sometimes my kids are back at the door shaking hands or sometimes they come with the hospital to me and pray over the, the sick. And, and sometimes they even preach sermons in our home. In fact, I remember one of my, my youngest sons, uh, one of his first sermon he ever preached. It was three or four years ago. It was an incredible sermon. Three points. God created the heaven and the earth. Jesus died for your sin. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Right? I mean, What else do you need, right? I mean, it's beautiful, right? And so so Timothy is is like this, this ancient son who wants to follow his dad. And Paul says, like a son with a father, he has served with me. In what way? You see that in verse 22? In the gospel, he says. He served with me in the gospel. The gospel is simply what God has done to save you. The heart of the gospel is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, Timothy understood that we all were created in God's image. We are all created to have a relationship with God, to find our purpose and joy and delight in that relationship with God. And yet every single one of us has chosen another way. We have rebelled against this God who made us. The Bible calls that sin. And we have chosen to love creation, perhaps, or ourselves, most certainly, more than God. And because God is good and just, he will condemn all those who have rebelled against him. But because God is gracious and loving, he has sent his son to die upon a cross to pay the penalty for my sin and for your sin. He's our substitute. And then God gave us ample reason to trust him because three days later he raised him historically, physically, visibly from the grave through the resurrection. And the Bible tells us that if we trust in Christ, that we will be restored to that relationship with God, not just in this life, but forevermore. The scripture tells us in Romans chapter 10 that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that Timothy is serving and he's explaining and applying it. And sometimes that's done through preaching, but probably much more often it's done over a backyard fence or over a cup of coffee with a believer and non-believer explaining the gospel, serving the gospel. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. We're certainly delighted that you can come today and we feel, hope you feel welcomed and appreciated. And, and I understand looking at this letter is probably not what you came hoping I would preach and it may seem somewhat obscure and irrelevant to your life. And it may be. But I don't think the gospel is. I think the gospel might be worthy of your consideration. I certainly love to talk to you afterwards. I'll be around or maybe you could shoot me an email this week and, and we can dialogue about what the gospel is and what the Bible says, how one can be saved. See, Timothy wants to serve the gospel. You see that verse 22? He has served with me in the gospel. The gospel was something he gave his life to. If you're a Christian here this morning, I want you to understand that the gospel is something you give to. You give your life to the cause of the gospel. It's not simply the other way around. I think so often we have understood the gospel as what I get. And Christianity has become this this way of self-fulfillment. We use the the gospel just to feed our self-absorption. And Timothy say, no, I want to serve the gospel. I want to advance the gospel. I want to give the gospel. Please understand, Christian, that, that the sum of Christianity is not God loves me so much he sent Jesus to die for me. That is a truncated gospel. Because if that's where you end, if all the gospel is, is God loves me, then who's the object of Christianity? Me. Me, I am. And it's all about me. And all of a sudden, Christianity becomes about me, and churches become about me, and everything becomes about me, and I'm getting my own way, or my preferences being met, or my tastes and likes being met. Christianity is not God loves me, period. 
Christianity is God loves me, that he sent Christ to die for me, that I might be restored to a relationship with him, that I might live for him, that I might serve him, and that I might even sacrifice and give up everything for him. He is the object of Christianity. Timothy shows us that. So I wonder, are you following someone like Timothy? I, I think you would do well to look for Christians who love others well, even sacrifice to do so. Maybe those who cheerfully pick up afterwards or those who are not easily offended. Um, those who esteem others in God's word or look for Christians who love Christ well, who are quick to pray and commend to you, Jesus. Watch them. Get to know them. Imitate them. Well, Paul gives us another example, doesn't he? This man named Epaphroditus. We'll move more quickly with him. Epaphroditus is introduced to us in verse 25 when he says, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Paul plans to send Timothy soon. According to verse 23, as soon as he sees how it will go with me, he's referring to the verdict. He's in prison, remember? He says, I'm going to find out my verdict. And as soon as I find out, I'm going to send Timothy to you. But I'm not going to wait for my legal fate before I send another. So I'm going to send Epaphroditus to you. He's going to be sent as soon as the ink dries on this papyrus. He's going to carry this, uh, this letter from Paul to the church in Philippi and hand deliver it. Now, we don't know much about Epaphroditus. All we know, in fact, is just these five or six verses. We don't know his background, his profession, his family. We do know, according to verse 25, he's a member of the Philippian church. We also know, according to chapter 4, that he would bring money from the Philippian church to Paul in Rome to support him, and that he was there to stay and help Paul. We also know that he became very sick during this work. Look in verse 26. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." And so evidently he almost died on this journey and news got back to Philippi and they became very anxious um, about his health. And but yet by God's power, he was healed. He recovered and Paul wants to send him back because according to verse 26, he'll be relieved when he gets back home. And then verse 28, they'll be relieved when they see him. And then Paul will be relieved when everybody else is relieved. And so he wants them to go back. And so he sets out from Philippi carrying this letter of Paul's thanks and he's going to uh, present his own restored health as evidence of God's kindness and power in his life. And so there he will come home to Philippi. But of course, Paul could have sent a courier with this letter, couldn't he? He could have sent a letter saying, uh, Paphrodite is okay, don't worry about him, everything's going well. He could have sent the letter without him. And I think he's sending him because in light of their disunity issues in Philippi, that they need a role model what this humble godliness looks like. And Epaphroditus is the man. In fact, he is going to draw attention to him in verse 25 by giving him no less than five titles. The first three are in reference to his relationship with Paul. The other two are in reference to his relationship with the Philippian church. And so what does this humble godliness look like? What does this sacrificial soldier do? Well, Paul begins by saying in verse 25, he is my brother. Epaphroditus means favored by Aphrodite, the goddess of love. So evidently he had pagan parents who who sought um, this pagan protection over him. And yet now by God's grace, he's favored by God. And Paul says, he's my brother. He has a new identity, a new family. Just think about that for a moment. Perhaps it's hard for us to appreciate because we don't live in this day. But you had a Gentile man from a Roman colony in worship of a pagan god. And then you have a Jewish former Pharisee from the promised land. And they say, we're brothers now. We're brothers in Christ. That's the work of the gospel, to bring people together like that. And they're brothers not just because they're in Christ, but because of this great affection for one another as they serve together, which is obvious when you see that Paul secondly calls him my fellow worker, and then thirdly, my fellow soldier. He's a worker. He does the work before him. He's a soldier. He's willing to fight the battles before him against our enemies. But I think what's even more significant than this worker and soldier title is that Paul fronts them by saying he's my fellow worker. He's my fellow soldier. We did this work together. We are fighting this battle together. In fact, one way I think he's a soldier is that he risked his life for the gospel. Paul mentions that in verse 30, saying, For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. 
And so he, there he is risking his life in this Christian service. We, we don't, his condition's not, not really described to us. His illness that he had, this was the risk that Paul's referring to. Not some, by the way, dangerous ministry. It's not that he's preaching before an angry mob or standing on trial as Paul did. He risked his life because he got sick in carrying out this selfless Christian ministry. We don't know what the sickness was, but Paul three times mentions he almost died. And yet he survived. For verse 27 says, God had mercy on him. God healed him. But it's interesting to think about that. Just as a footnote, it's, it seems that the healing did not come from Paul. Which is interesting because Paul has healed a lame man before in Lystra. He's raised a dead man, Eutychus, from the dead. And yet here is Epaphroditus who's gravely ill and evidently Paul can't do anything about it. Much like he couldn't help Timothy in his stomach ailments except for prescribing a little wine, as he said. And so yet God came and God healed Epaphroditus, evidently without the mediation of Paul's uh, ministry in his life. And, and there he is healed as his soldier was greatly sick. And I love this about him because this man who's very sick, even all, almost to the point of death, does it in the middle of his ministry. I can't do it. I'm, I'm too sick. He doesn't turn around and go back home. He perseveres. He keeps going. He wants to complete the mission that was entrusted to him. He's a soldier for the gospel. He's going to serve the gospel, not, not in some heroic act, but something mundane and simple of pressing on. I think we would do well to, to look for, for the ministries around our church that could use a, a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. I think Epaphroditus helps us to see this. You may see a ministry and say, well, that's too hard. Or maybe you look at a ministry and say, well, that's too inconvenient. I'm going to interrupt my schedule too much. Something in the church that we need your help, but you say, I just can't really give to that. I would just put this thought in your mind. Maybe we can begin to consider the value of enduring hardship for the sake of the gospel. Maybe there's actually greater value in doing ministry that is hard than ministry that is easy. It seems like that's what's going on in Epaphroditus' life. It's not just the fact that he went, but he endured such hardship in doing it. Well, Paul fourthly calls him their messenger. You see that in verse 25. He clearly loves his church as he comes from the church in Philippi. And, and Paul, Paul loves that church as well. And it's his heart that's drawing him back. In verse 26, Paul says he longs for them. And for, again, in verse 26, he's distressed about their anxiety. They think he's dying. Um, they, they, they don't know that he's been healed. He's thinking about all the sleepless nights they must have, all the prayers for healing they must be offering, even though he's already healed. And he loves them. He longs for them. I think in that, he's a good example to us. Once again, as we see what the, the church community is supposed to be. Evidently, for Paphroditus, church is not something that he attends. It's something he is part of. That, that church service, uh, church is not a service to receive, it's a community to enjoy. He says, I long for them. I'm distressed over their anxiety, he says. I very much appreciate what one commentator puts when he considers Epaphroditus' love for his church. He says, the yearning of Epaphroditus um, to be with his brothers and sisters stands in stark contrast to the individualism and the frantic busyness of many Christians today who regard involvement with other believers in worship and fellowship as a duty to be discharged as efficiently as possible, lest the family of God unduly interrupt one's private schedule, which is already overfilled with commitments and amusements. Whether our social, he goes on and says, whether our social context works for or against the church's life together, what will make the difference is not the ease or difficulty of getting together, but the yearning in our hearts. Cultivate that yearning, he says. For it is the appetite that anticipates the very joys of eternity when the family of God will gather in celebration at our Father's banquet table. Christians, I think we probably would do well to work against our culture's value of independence and ease. Our world holds that up to us. Independence is something to shoot for. Easy life is something to shoot for. But I wonder if at the heart of those values lies a love for self rather than a love for one another. Cultivate your love for your brothers and sisters, as Epaphroditus clearly did. Well, lastly, we see that Paul describes him, his, their minister in, to my need. Evidently, upon hearing Paul's imprisonment, the troubled Philippian church dispatched Epaphroditus with a gift, a sum of money to help Paul. If you look over in chapter 4 and verse 18, Paul mentions as much. 
He says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. Right? This financial give, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul's under house arrest. And in that day, if you're under house arrest, you pay for your own food. And he, of course, has no means of income being under arrest. He's chained for four years by an 18-inch chain from arm to arm to another guard, never to be released. And so the Philippian church sends Epaphroditus with this gift to help him. But he's not, but he's to stay there and help. We know that from verse 30. So he was to bring a gift and he was to be a gift. And yet now he's returning home. And so how should they receive him? Well, Paul mentions in verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Honor men like Epaphroditus. Welcome him back with joy. He says, imitate him. He's an example worth following. A, a man who is following Jesus, who after all, not only risked his life for us, but actually gave it for us. And Epaphroditus is an example of what that looks like in ministry. I think as a church, we would do well to honor people differently than how the world honors people. The world honors the powerful and the rich and the prestigious. I think we should honor those who serve and perhaps serve with little recognition and least self-sought recognition. Well, lastly and quickly, let us consider Paul. He's all over this text, this loving provider. I love what he teaches here. Much of it has been very helpful for me in my time of study. You see, Paul has this submission to God. I don't know if you notice the way Paul speaks about his future plans, but look in verse 19 when he says, I hope in the Lord to send... I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Or look in verse 24. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come. Right, so Paul considers these future events. He, he doesn't at that time fail to express his understanding that it's God who controls his future. He hopes to send Timothy, doesn't he? He trusts that he will come soon as well. Well, that all depends upon God, Paul says. God may have a different idea. Like when Paul wanted to go to North Turkey and, and God said, no, I want you in Philippi. Or when Paul promised twice to go to the church in Corinth, but God twice sent him elsewhere. Or when Paul wrote to the church in Rome and he said that somehow by God's will, I may at last succeed in coming to you. Well, he did make it, didn't he? Uh, But he made it through imprisonment. Not the way I trust he was praying about. But it was according to God's will. Paul evidently is aware that God controls every circumstance in his life. And he believes for his good and for Christ's kingdom. And, and knowing that God is sovereignly in control doesn't make Paul passive, by the way. It doesn't make him fatalistic. It rather, he, he planned and prayed and strategized. And yet he kept a light grip upon his future plans. I wonder how you make future plans. I wonder how you, you begin to consider, perhaps, as growing up, what university you might attend or what job you might pursue or or perhaps what spouse you might marry. Or maybe as, as we mature, as we consider our investment strategies, or our spending strategies, or our giving strategies. I wonder when we make these plans and have these hopes, do we, do we do so with submission? Do we do so with humility, knowing that God has the rights and the wisdom to overrule and to redirect? God is in control of everything, Paul says. That makes every day an adventure, doesn't it? Right? What, what, what's God going to do today? Right? What opportunities will he give? What people will he send? What tests will he bring upon us today? So make plans. Strategize about your future. Yes, but do so with a light grip upon them. For God is sovereign. Paul understands that. And he makes plans here, knowing God's sovereignty. But his plans are to love this church. He makes plans to send a Timothy, or first Epaphroditus, then Timothy, and eventually himself. They're all going to go to Philippi out of their love for them. His, this lo- letter overflows with his love for them. In fact, I think his love for Epaphroditus is especially moving. You see that in verse 27. He's referring to him. He says, indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I think it's important to note that phrase, sorrow upon sorrow, especially in this letter, which is overflowing with these continual exhortations to joy. Right? Paul is constantly saying, I'm rejoicing. You ought to rejoice. I am filled with joy. Please do not understand when the Bible says we ought to be filled with joy, that that somehow precludes sorrow. Evidently, it didn't in Paul's mind. Paul says that he was right at the, the brink of sorrow upon sorrow. His joy, therefore, does not make sorrow illegitimate. Even in the death of a beloved Christian, it is good and appropriate when a Christian dies whom you love to be filled with sorrow, evidently. 
even though our sorrow over, is overruled with hope and joy as to what has come upon them. Paul thinks his sorrows around the corner because he loves Epaphroditus so much. In fact, if you look one more time at verse 27, I don't know if you noticed it, but he says, but God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also. So who did God have mercy on? Well, certainly Epaphroditus. But Paul says he had it on me. In in other words, what he's saying is God's mercy on Epaphroditus is also mercy on me. This was startling when I thought about it and considered it. I mean, how often do we actually think this way, that God's grace on another within our faith community is actually grace upon me, on you? Now, I know we're called to rejoice with other people, and and certainly uh, we do that, and and that seems to be somewhat easy. When God blesses you, I, I can actually rejoice with you. I can give praise for what God has done in your life. But I think it's entirely different to say that when you receive grace, I'm actually the one getting grace. I never do that, to be perfectly honest, to my shame. I don't. I don't rejoice. I rejoice for what God's doing in you, but I don't rejoice that that I, as your brother in this community of faith, am actually receiving the mercy as well. God says mercy falls upon Paul when he gives mercy to Epaphroditus. You see how linked they are. You see how this brotherhood, how the love that is there. And this love for Paul is not simply this emotional attachment, but just like Timothy, like Epaphroditus, he's willing to sacrifice because he loves them. You think Paul could have used Epaphroditus' help? You think he could have used Timothy's aid? I think he could have. And yet he's willing to send them because he wants to bless this church. In fact, you remember what Paul is? He's in prison. You think he could have used the company and the help for people to to get around Rome and to support him? I'm sure it would be nice to have, and yet he's willing to sacrifice. It's almost like a father sacrificing for a child in order that child's good may be put above the father's. Paul seems to be like that. Uh, uh, He serves them. He loves them. He sacrifices them. I think on those days when when we feel like we, we have nothing left to give, on those days when we're upset because no one's serving us and no one's meeting our needs, I think we do well to remember Paul, this loving sacrifice, even if it cost him greatly. I think this marks mature Christians worthy of following. So my question as you end, as we end this morning is, is whom are you following? Who do you follow? Who are you imitating? I think there's many people worthy of our emulation. I think we can look to the past. I've been profoundly impacted by reading missionary biographies. I would commend those to you. Great men and women of faith. John Patton and Adoniram Judson and David Livingston. Lottie Moon. People who have sacrificed so much will be powerful in your life. You know, in fact, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, you remember that passage where that, that great hall of faith and he just goes through and lists all those people who walked with God in Hebrews 11. And then he gets to chapter 12 after going over all these people who followed God closely by faith. And he says in chapter 12 and verse 1, um, since we are surrounded by such a great, you know what it is? Cloud of witnesses. Well, who's the cloud of witnesses? Well, it's those he just described in chapter 11. He says, since these people have have given this life for you to follow, you too follow Christ with perseverance, running the race marked before you. I think we can look to the past. I think we can look to Scripture like we have over this past hour or so. Looking at these three men who followed Jesus, they could be examples to us. I think we can look in our church, can't we? We could look around. I wonder if we see people who are farther down this road in pursuit of Christ and we think, I want to be more like him. I want to be more like her. And we want to get to that point. I, I hope as a church that, that we will increasingly grow interconnected with one another and that there will be these relationships that we have when some of the older individuals of our church are mentoring some of the younger individuals. In fact, if you're one of those older individuals, I would really encourage you to understand that part of your ministry in this church is to grab someone younger than you who has been following Jesus less time and say, can, can we start meeting together? Maybe, maybe for the next six months we can meet every other week and just read the Bible together and pray and we could consider each other's lives. I think it would be wonderfully profitable, not only in your life but in their life. I think it would also be very biblical as we see in Titus chapter 2. In fact, one of the greatest um, impacts upon my life was and my previous pastor, an older man, Lee Copeland, about 70 years old, been pastoring for 40 years, said, I would like to start meeting with you. He must have been concerned about me or maybe concerned about the church I was pastoring. I'm not sure. But we met almost every week for about seven years. 
And I don't think I grew farther in my relationship with God um, than any other time, except under this man who's much wiser and lived much longer than I have. Powerful blessing. I think we could look around and, and see people in our church worthy of following. I would also encourage you to look at yourself. I wonder if you're an example. It's kind of how we started this message. Are you giving an example worthy of following, worthy of emulation? Is your life worthy of honoring? Do you show what it's like to surrender your plans to God? Do you show what it's like to have your hearts drawn outwards, embracing others, even if it costs you? Do you show what it's like to be captivated by the gospel that you gladly risk for Jesus' glory? Lastly, I would consider us to look at Jesus. He, after all, is the one we are following. And he has shown us what it looks like to live a life devoted to God and the life that he loved and the love that he gave. I think we would do well to understand him and look to him as he has revealed himself in the Scriptures. I hope you have these people in your life that you can emulate, as the Bible tells us we ought to. But maybe you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. I would encourage you not to find anyone to emulate. Perhaps the last thing you need to do is find someone to follow. You don't need an example. You need a Savior. And I say that with humility in my heart because there was a time in my life when I didn't need an example. I needed someone to save me. There is only one who can save. His name is Jesus Christ. He is the Son of God. He's died upon the cross to pay for sin and rose from the dead. If you would bow your knee to him, he would save you. It's at that time that you would do well to have someone to help you to follow him. I'd love to speak to you. I know the number of other people would love to. If you want more information about who Jesus is and how you can give your life to him, he's worthy of following. He wants us to be like him. He's given us a church, Christians, so that we can live together and have examples to follow Christ. And may we be faithful to that Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time to consider it. We ask that you would help us. We want to follow Jesus. We want to be like him. And so please guide us and lead us in this, dear Lord. Please show us how we are to do so. Please, Father, will you help us to, to break the habit of, of thinking that following Jesus just means listening to sermons or just means going to Bible studies. I pray that you would help us to take what we've learned and that we would actually live it out. Please help us. Help us to advance not just in our knowledge of you, but in our pursuit of you. Transform us through your word and through the church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.